This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. To acknowledge the Gadigal people on whose lands we are meeting on here today. We are here on Gadigal land, under a Gadigal sky, surrounded by the waters of Gadigal. And I'd like to acknowledge the elders who have held this land since time immemorial. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Emily Vanderstock. I am a native bee ecologist. I just finished my PhD at Sydney University looking at the ecology of native bees. Thank you. It's a <laughs> thank you for that. It feels very special. And it feels very special to be here at the Australian Museum with Dr. Michael Batley, uh, who has so much wisdom about native bees here in Australia and has really supported so many native bee researchers um, to learn more. So it's very special to be here today. Uh, as you may have noticed, Michael and I are wearing microphones. Uh, this conversation is going to be recorded and will be uploaded to the Australian Museum website so that even more people can be able to share in the joy of native bees. Today we're going to be exploring the diversity of native bees. We're going to be looking at practical ways that we can support our native bees. And we're going to be looking at how this all fits within the context of climate change, because everything is about climate change. And there are actually really tangible ways that we can support and conserve our incredible biodiversity. So I'm really excited to learn about five beautiful common species of native bees here from Michael, and five ways that we can take that learning into our own actions at home. We're going to start with this conversation around diversity uh, from Dr. Michael Batley, who has been volunteering at the Australian Museum for over 20 years. He has described 40 of the 1,600 native bees that we know of in Australia. There are more to come, I'm sure. <laughs> and he's a huge asset to the native bee community. Uh, he has helped countless researchers to identify these native bees. He's actually one of four taxonomists in Australia on native bees. There's only four, and he's one of them. We're very lucky to be in this room today. And he's been described as one of the map makers of nature. So with Michael's help, we'll be learning about Australian native bees and what we can do. And I'm so excited to have you here. Let's give um, a round of applause for Michael. To start with, I'd love to ask you a little bit about your journey, uh, how we came to be today. What sparked your interest? Why native bees? Ah, well, when I was contemplating retirement from teaching physical chemistry, uh, I read a book that said only half the bees in Australia had been described. We had half of our bees still to be described. And I thought perhaps someone could, like me, could be a pair of hands that could help people describe, well, with future research into the bees. 
and I've been on the receiving end of that, so thank you for helping out. <laughs> and you had some pretty memorable encounters when you were first starting to learn about them. Uh, Can you share a bit about that? Well, uh, right at the beginning when all I knew was that there was a blue-banded bee and there was a cuckoo bee, I thought perhaps I should find an area around Sydney where I can go to look for bees on a regular basis. And so we just drove north. We thought, well, we'll drive till we hit the Hawkesbury River. We came across Maramara National Park that we'd never come across before. And while we were there, I saw the green and gold carpenter bee, beautiful, spectacular bee that I didn't even know existed. But more than that, I saw a behaviour mating behaviour that I haven't seen more than once or twice since. And this was the female flying a zigzag pattern. She would slowly climb, followed by two males. And then, suddenly she would drop, and the males would have to find her and carry on again. She repeated this zigzag pattern over and over. Now, that's very rare, but I saw it on the very first occasion that I went out looking for bees. Found a spectacular bee, doing something very interesting. That's fascinating. That's so amazing. In fact, who here has seen a native bee in their own garden? Wonderful, that's why you're all here. It's certainly really inspiring to see them out in our own places where we're learning to see those encounters, isn't it? Yes. And with over 1,600 species, do you have a favorite? Oh, that's a naughty <laughs> question. That's like asking me, do I have a favourite grandchild? Uh, I guess I'd have to say it's what I've been looking at most recently. Um, and I've been looking at uh, Bacchausia citriodora, which has been flowering within a couple of suburbs near where I am. And I've been surprised at seeing how many fire-tailed resin bees were on these Bacchausia. And so at the moment, fire-tailed resin bee is my favourite. So that's your favourite grandchild? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're going to learn about a few of the different kinds of bees that you've encountered and that many of us might actually meet in our own gardens. Uh, Michael was telling me earlier that all of the videos, um, well, all the bees that are chosen for our five bees today were actually found in your own garden. Yes. And so we have over 300 species of native bees just in the Sydney region. And uh, so a lot of these bees we might actually see. So we know that you've seen some native bees already. Maybe um, as you're looking at these bees and we introduce them, take a little mental note. Maybe you noticed if you've seen them before, and maybe you might be able to see them in the coming summer. So shall we introduce our first bee? Yes. The first bee is the green and gold Nomia, which um, is fairly easy to recognise. What I'll try and do with each of these five bees is suggest how you might recognise it, uh, what sort of flowers it visits, uh, perhaps when you can expect to see it and where they nest to get some idea of what they're like. This bee is like 90% of our bees and it has no strong preference for flowers. It visits all sorts of things. Uh, I've got a list of 20 different 
flower genera that I've seen this bee on. Can we have the video? It's easy to recognize by the orange bands and the metallic abdomen. There's no other bee quite like that. It's a metallic blue-green, which is not always very obvious. It's not as big as a honeybee, but it's moderate size. It's not a tiny bee. And it will, uh, as I said before, visit all sorts of things. The females nest in the ground. Again, more, about 60% of our species nest in the ground. All you will see is perhaps a little turret of soil, and maybe if you're lucky, you'll see a female sticking her face out of the nest. But the males don't take any part in nest building, so you find them clustering together at night on a stalk or a stem somewhere, sheltering uh, overnight. Thanks. Now, you saw, we saw that beautiful little video of the female bee popping her head out. Is that because she's guarding the nest? In a sense, um, very often, several females will use the same shaft, even though they're building their own nests in sort of side tunnels. So each female is operating as though she's independent, but they're all using the same entrance hole. And that will mean that quite often there's a female at the entrance, and if any wasp or ant or anything tries to come into that tunnel, you'll, you can see and chase the intruder out. That's fascinating. Now, looking at that photo, does anyone think they might have met this green and gold Nomia bee before? Or I'm seeing a few. I haven't seen that one, but we have, I think it's the Ferruginous tail has that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We have a lot of those. Yeah. Look out for them in our gardens. <laughs> the second one I've chosen is the gold tipped leafcutter bee. Leafcutter and resin bees are easily distinguished by where they carry the pollen, which is under the abdomen. You can see the white hairs sticking out under the abdomen. Uh, the, this particular bee, the gold-tipped one, is the only leafcutter that's got both red on the face and red on the tail, or at least the only leafcutter from ground here. If we have a look at the next video, um, they're a reasonably uh, common bee and they also visit all sorts of flowers. But they're particularly good at visiting pea flowers because they can just scrape the pollen straight onto those hairs underneath the abdomen. But they're by no means restricted to visiting those flowers. They're called leaf cutters because they build their nests using little circles of leaf which they glue together to support the nest. This is a very old female, look at her tattered wings, but she's able to cut out a circle of leaf in no time at all. And they carry it off either to a crack in, in between rocks or sometimes a little tunnel under roots. Uh, this is, these are usually quite shallow and they build their little cocoon of leaves inside that tunnel. Resin bees 
have a somewhat different shaped body, and they collect resin, which they use. They use tunnels that are already uh, bored into wood by beetles or something like that, and they seal up the end of the tunnel with resin. Again, the males don't take any part in the nesting, so they roost together at night. You mentioned the resin bees have a slightly different shaped body. How can you tell the difference between a leafcutter bee and a resin bee? Well, there's a, a little trick that um, it doesn't work 100% of the time, but mostly the leafcutter bees will land and hold their wings at a sort of 45 degrees angle out. The resin bees tend to fold their wings over their back. But there's also a difference in the shape of the body. The leafcutter bees tend to have a heart-shaped or uh, abdomen, whereas the resin bees have a more cylindrical abdomen. But, uh, the, so they're fairly easy to tell by inspection. The next bee is one you all know, a uh, common blue-banded bee. Um, there are two species that are common around Sydney, uh, Amagilla reserta, which has a yellow face, and Amagilla pulchra, which tends to have a white face. When you get them in a museum collection, the specimens tend to discolour and it's sometimes almost impossible to tell them apart. Uh, same with the little black marks on the face. They're much narrower in Asserta than they are in Pulchra, but again there's variation within a species that can make them difficult to separate. But in the field, that's a fairly good way of telling the difference between them. If we look at the video, you'll see that one thing about Amagilla is they seldom land on the flowers. They just dip their proboscis into the flower. They're very busy. Um, they like visiting tubular flowers because they can reach nectar that other bees can't, so there's a greater chance that they'll find a reward when they visit the flowers. So while they visit lots of different sorts of flowers, just like the bees before them did, uh, they do show preference to tubular flowers when they can. Their nests are not quite in the ground. They tend to be in the banks, creek banks and sloping surfaces. Um, and uh, it's, it's not certain. We, we don't know where every blue-banded bee nests but many of them do nest in the banks of creeks. In Queensland, they nest under houses uh, because in, in Brisbane, all the houses are built on stilts, or many of them are, and there's nice open area underneath of soil that the blue bandits can burrow into. I, um, I have friends with a mud brick house and they said the blue banded bees are really into the mud brick house as well. So um, they, are, they, they will live in different places. And one of the things though we don't know is whether both of these species nest in brick house, uh, mud ah. brick houses. 
every, spe every specimen I've seen from a mud brick house has been pulchra. And I've seen a surtar go into a nest in a lawn in a local park. It's mowed regularly by the council. And what this bee did was just disappear into a hole in the ground. So I'm agnostic. I don't know. <laughs> but I would like to find out whether perhaps they nest in different ways. So if anyone's looking for a research project, <laughs> talk to Michael. That's right. Uh, then we come to uh, a bee that doesn't visit all sorts of flowers. It does have distinct preference. Spring bees as a whole have a preference for pea flowers. Uh, there are two or three species that visit other things, but most of them, of the 40 species that there are, uh, spend 90% of their time visiting um, pea flowers. The thing about visiting flowers is you've got to ask, are they visiting for pollen or are they visiting for nectar? Because if they were after only nectar for energy, they might visit something else, even though the female will use only one type of pollen to feed her larvae. And that's why the figure for pea visits by most of these species is only 90%. 10% of the time, it's just males or females looking for nectar. Can we have the, thank you. Um, they, you can recognize these bees by the way they hover. They tend to fly very quickly, but then you'll see them sort of hover in front of flowers. In particular, the females have another habit. They cycle their legs just before they land, like there. And so you, by just watching how they fly around flowers, you can identify some of these spring bees. Now, they have a very interesting interaction with orchids, diurus orchids, which look like pea flowers. And males will come and have a bit of a look at the flower. And sometimes they'll go and visit and end up with pollen on their face, stuck to their face. So they're important pollinators of the orchids. Thanks. That's really interesting. So the males are doing some of that pollinating work as well in that case. Yes, um, in this particular case. And there seems to be a very special timing event, at least around Sydney, where the orchid comes out a little bit before the pea flowers that the female bees are going to be visiting. So the pea flowers have got a few flowers just appearing, and the orchids are in full bloom, and the male bees are out a couple of weeks earlier than the females in order to be ready for the females to appear. And so that's when the males pick up the orchid pollen because they're not sure whether or not there's nectar in that orchid and there isn't. And that's really interesting. In the context of climate change, we're seeing these specialist bees are so intricately intertwined with the ecology of the plants and when they're flowering. Yes. So when we're thinking about climate change, we can really see that in this case. Yes. It, it's been very interesting, yes. Especially, and this year has been uh, 
particularly interesting because everything's been late this year. Um, oh, and this, yes, the spring bees, um, as you can see on the right, are only out for a short period of time compared to the green and gold gnomia, which are out for most of the year. Now, this picture on the right is what contributes to my belief that bees live for about six to eight weeks, individual bees. So unless there's more than one generation, they will uh, be gone by the end of that six or eight weeks. But there's something else very interesting that's been discovered by Terry Halston in Perth only about a year ago, and that is that this spring bee, the common spring bee that we have in Sydney, does something that's unusual. Usually the bees, when they have consumed, when the larva has consumed all of the pollen, it stops and stays as a larva until the next year, until after winter, and it warms up. Then it turns into an adult and emerges. This bee emerges, doesn't emerge, it turns into an adult before winter, and then it sits there, and it waits, so that when the first flowers appear in spring, it can come out. And for the last three years, I have gone out on the 1st of July when the Baronia ledifolia just opens and on each of those years I have found the spring bee there, at least male spring bees. And then the lovely green and gold, or golden green carpenter bee, I'm not very good with, with uh, common names, I did help make them, <laughs> make some of them up. But <laughs> um, yes, this this is a, a beautiful bee, and this is the one that I spoke about earlier. Have we got a? There we go. Um, yes, these are very easy to recognise. They're also extraordinarily good pollinators of grevilleas. Uh, you, you can see how that grevillea is just dabbing the pollen on back. But they visit more flowers, more different types of flowers than almost any other bee I can think of. They nest in the stems of old uh, flowering stems of grass trees, in rotting banksias, in anything where the wood is soft. And their nests are rather interesting because you can see here there's an egg on a ball of pollen and here the larva has hatched out and it's already starting to consume the pollen and then further down we have one that's considerably larger and you can see all this sort of filling in between the chambers and this is the final stage where it's the resting larva and it will rest until the next spring and turn into a pupa and then into an adult. 
So you mentioned that these are in xanthoria stems and soft banksias, but especially with all the bushfires we've seen, are they, are they endangered? Not around Sydney. Uh, the population in, on Kangaroo Island suffered very badly uh, with the fires and people have been studying that particular population for some years and they're very concerned. But since 2019, 2020 fires, I've never seen so many of these carpenter bees around Sydney and all the way up, um, Hawks, up right up to Hawks Nest and then all, all the way up in the ranges. So no, they're not endangered around Sydney. Uh, they seem to be doing very well. Well, that's very promising news. Yes. Um, I think right. they're our top five common bees that you chose to share yes. with us. And you were saying earlier that I'd seen them all in my garden. I haven't seen the, the carpenter bee in my garden very often, but I have seen it on that same hardened bergier that I showed you the gnomia on. And so you found these in your garden and in the surrounds. Um, but for the rest of us, what are, your, what are your top tips to if we want to see these bees out in the wild or in our gardens? Um, what are your top tips for being able to observe them? Uh, well, uh, it's very easy. The, the first thing is that they need nectar and pollen, so they need flowers. Um, flower lists are infamous because lots of people overseas have looked at flower lists and they've concluded either the flower lists totally disagree with one flower list with another or the two flower lists are just one is just a straight copy of the other one. In other words, flower lists tend to get copied but when people do try independent flower lists they're nothing alike. So I'm going to suggest to you that you just use common sense and think about what we've already learnt. And what we've already learnt is that bees very commonly have several generations perhaps and <clears throat> so they will need flowers right throughout the year. So it's not much use having something that flowers now and then there's a gap and nothing for the bees to feed on next week. So try to find things that flower over a long period or have a sequence of things that flower over a period. And I think, yes, one of my favourites is uh, Thai basil because it's open all the time. However, uh, Thai basil is a tubular flower so I get more blue-banded bees than I, and uh, leaf-cutter bees than I get anything else. So if you want to find smaller bees, then you need to plant things like tea tree, which is readily available, or bottle brush, which have readily available nectar. Um, and here's a revillia, and you can see all the nectar glistening in there at the base of the flowers. Here's a leptospermum, there's a bottle brush, that sort of thing. Or even things with just small flowers like Bacchausia, uh, if you want to see some of the smaller bees. 
So now we're really getting into what we can do for our bees, for our five practical tips. We've already um, described that we can provide flowers all year round and looking into some of these species. Yes, but if you want to see a spring bee, for example, then you might need to make sure you've got pea flowers in spring and in particular hardened bergia. They love hardened bergia. So write that one down for your planting list. <laughs> the second thing is obvious. You could work it out for yourself. Don't go easy on the pesticides. Um, there are terrible things that will chew up all my bulbs, um, but and so for that I use um, Dipel, uh, is it Dipel? The BT toxin. Uh, but if you can avoid pesticides, then that's a good idea. And that's a really big one for our bees because obviously the pesticides, the insecticides, they're, they're designed to kill mm -hmm. insects and bees are insects. So mm -hmm. that does make a lot of sense to be on our list for five practical tips that we can do. Yeah. Up there in the top left, you can see a little patch of different coloured soil. Uh, that may be all you see. There's another couple up there. That's a series of nests in a path in Kringai Chase National Park. Um, but in your garden, you may find these little turrets. Sometimes they're a bit more spectacular, like this bee that, that uh, occurs out in Richmond. Um, the whole suburb, the front lawns are covered with these big orange turrets. But if you watch for those nests, you'll know not to um, dig up all the area. Uh, you can look out for old bottle brushes where the rather dead twigs are hanging down. Those twigs can be useful for the male bees to roost at night. So that can be a useful thing to check that you're not destroying habitat. The next thing is that one of the things we really need is to understand much more about our bees. We know very little about how many generations of bees there are each year for any particular species. We know very little about their habits. Um, and so learning to recognize bees, at least to the level of genus, can be very helpful. And there are lots of resources. So there's the website Aussie Bee. There's, um, what's that one? Oh, Canberra Nature Map. Let me put in a plug for the Greater Sydney Nature Map, because it's the same as Canberra Nature Map, but focused on Sydney. I curate the bee images for Canberra Nature Map and for the Sydney one, and there's nothing coming through on the Sydney one, or I think I've had two. Whereas Canberra Nature Map, the people in Canberra are going around photographing bees all the time. So, Please, start photographing bees, start sending them to Sydney Nature Map. There are things like 
books that will help you identify bees. And there's even a, a little website that can help with a couple of genera of bees to identify them. I think you've used a couple of those. Yeah, I have. I found these, um, the, especially the megachylene and the hyline um, websites. They were really helpful because a lot of the bees, you're looking for those, those markings. And to have the photos, you can do a bit of a process of elimination as well. And really useful for citizen science projects. Um, that Greater Sydney nature map is a good one for us. Even if everyone in this room went back to our gardens this afternoon, had a little look for a bee, put it up onto the map, well, we'd be much more than two people. So <laughs> it's not just about the habitat or the flowers, but that growing knowledge is yes. a really important thing that we can do for our bees. We've only got four taxonomists in Australia as well, so if anyone wants to learn with Michael Batley, um, growing that knowledge as citizen scientists, as people on the grounds, in our gardens, in the museums, that's a huge part of the story, isn't it? Yep. And notice the title on this book by Peter Abbott. Peter is part of the Canberra Nature Map group of photographers who's put together... Uh, a little book because he recognised that if you restrict yourself to a particular area, then the number of bees that you have to include and consider is somewhat smaller, although 300 for Sydney's quite big <laughs> enough, I think. Uh, but he's called it a spotter's guide, and that's what we need. We need spotters. And... I'll explain why. Ah, okay. Um, we were going to suggest that we haven't printed this off. Um, if people want to take a photo uh, of those references, then please do. Uh, the, I'll just explain the fourth one down there um, is... Uh, is the little, uh, I, I should explain. This started off as a project where I wanted to see whether you could put an interactive bee identification tool onto a mobile phone uh, and have it such that you could sort of download it for a particular area. And the exercise was to see how big the application would be. I eventually abandoned it when Apple wanted to charge me $100 to put a free program, $100 a year to put the free program up. And so I've just ended up putting it on the internet so that people can use that trial program. The reason I've drawn attention to it is simply that there's two things. SM stands for Sydney Megachelid Bees resin bees and leaf cutters, and SH stands for Sydney hyaline bees, the mask bees. So that's why there are two there. And these are, this is definitely worth taking a photo of. These resources are incredible. They really helped me in my PhD, and I had um, quite a few people working with me using the resources as well. They're extremely helpful. Right. Now... There are three reasons why you should become 
a spotter to help uh, provide us with very valuable information. And this is just one example. Uh, during COVID, uh, I published a little esoteric uh, taxonomic paper that was just sorting out a, a naming problem. I had to collaborate with people in the museum, National History Museum in London and in New York, and together we sorted out this problem. It was, it involved a little bee called Leopoldus thornleyensis, which so named because it had been found in Thornley. In the process, I came to the conclusion that the reason that we had almost no specimens of that bee species in museum collections was simply that it visits an insignificant little flower, um, Polyceus sambucifolia, which has tiny little greenish flowers, which nobody looks at when they walk past the flowering plant. And Two people, Roger Farrow, down almost to the Victorian border. Oh, I, I had gone all around Sydney, and everywhere I found a Polyceus, I found the bee. So it seemed to be very common. I hypothesised that it was really a very common bee, just people had been walking straight past the flowers without looking. And now Roger Farrow sent me a, a picture, and it looks like, I'm still waiting for the specimen, uh, it looks like Thornleyensis. And then somebody else from almost to the Queensland border also sent me a picture, and I'm waiting for specimens of that too, because unfortunately this bee doesn't look sufficiently distinctive to be able to tell 100% from photographs. But by having people telling me what they're seeing and what they're finding and taking pictures, we can put together a story of why this bee just hasn't appeared in collections. What can be, sorry. So as spotters, when we're looking at flowers, we're taking photos of bees, what can we do with those photos for, those, for our spotting to be really helpful? Put them on the, one of these nature maps. Um, and yes, essentially put them on the nature the maps. Uh, the, Two nature maps that I've drawn attention to are ones that are curated. In other words, every time a picture saying this is a bee goes up, I get an email and I look at the picture. If it goes on iNaturalist, I would have to trawl through all of the pictures on iNaturalist and I don't have the time. It could be more formal. It, it got more formal when Barry Brandley in Ulladulla sent some bees and asked, could I ident identify them? And then after I did, he watched the bees in his garden for six years. And he recorded faithfully when they appeared, when they disappeared, when they appeared again, and so on. And it became clear that the bees had three separate or two, or sometimes three, generations every year. And so we were able to publish a little paper saying almost nothing is known about how many generations of bees there are per annum, and this is one case where we have evidence.
So it can result in actual formal publication, so that's true citizen science. Or this is a picture from the Canberra Nature Map. This is a bee that was found in 1928 uh, in the High Plains, Bogong High Plains, uh, the ski fields in Victoria. And was never seen again until about 10 years ago, Peter Weston from the Botanic Gardens came into the museum with some bees that he wanted me to identify and because he was looking at a particular pea flower. And it turned out that it was this the Leoproctus molsoni that hadn't been seen apart from that one specimen for a generation. So after he told me where he found it, I was able to go back and find that the population was there and able to check on it regularly. And yes, it's been fine for the last seven or eight years. And I started thinking, well, maybe that's because it's a pea flower that flowers in about November, December time. And so maybe I should be going around looking at summer flowering peas to see if I can find it. And I drove to Narrabri and I had a look and didn't find anything. Came back home and this picture from Canberra Nature Map was there. On Black Mountain in Canberra, here was the picture. Now, it did require very good Resolution. I had to be able to see the wing venation, which you can see quite clearly, which told me that it belonged to a particular subgenus. And then I had to be able to see on the face, there were two depressions, we call them fovea. And I had to be able to see those. So it did require a very good picture, but we were able to tell that the bee was present on Black Mountain. Eventually, Roger found the male as well. So simply by contributing to things like the nature map, we can discover really quite rare bees that we don't know where they are from. Absolutely. And that'll have carry-on effects too with knowing which bees are where by the different spotters around the place. We can then ask further questions like how are, how are the distributions changing? Um, what species are we seeing now? What species are we seeing down in the future? Are we seeing increases, decreases? So having that core spotting yes. is absolutely key to any applications in how we're going to approach the conservation of these incredible species under climate change and into the future. Yeah. It's giving the dying race of taxonomists more hands. <laughs> Well put, well put. And I mean, everyone has smartphones now, so we really can be able to contribute in that way. So you shared, you shared five of our common bees and five of our practical tips, which are to provide flowers all year round. Yes. Um, you mentioned that perennial basil was a good species, but then for some of the um, native bees that are more specialists, for example, you need to have the species that they're going to be flying on as well. And so you mentioned Hardenbergia was a good one for that. 
At the same time, native plant lists are pretty unreliable. So using common sense uh, and observing as well is going to be really important. You also mentioned to avoid insecticides as our second key practical tip. To watch for roosting and nesting sites. I loved that image of the lawn with the red piles on the lawn. If we see that, it's not time to mow the lawn. <laughs> it's time to let those bees thrive. Interest, interestingly, yeah. the owner of that particular property did mow regularly. And Interesting. It did, did not, in fact, cause the bees any harm. And he was able, even able to show me where one of the bees had tunnelled up through wet concrete and the hole was still in the wet, in the dried concrete. If that's not resilience, I don't know what is. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> and I, I would say that too about um, the plants that you consider for your garden. Mm. Because I talked earlier about uh, Bacchausia cetriodora, which is only, only flowers for a week or two. And yet, in those places where I looked, bees came from everywhere, all sorts of bees. I don't know where they go when the back house here isn't flowering. There's nothing else around that look like flowers. So bees, you plant it, the bees will come. Plant it and the bees will come. I love yep. that. I love that. Now, fourth tip was to learn to recognise the greater families of bees and using some of those resources. And that'll really help our community in general to be able to identify Australian native bees and to help with those ongoing questions that are going to be related to the changes that we're seeing over time. And to become a spotter. I love that term. We can all become spotters. We can become native bee spotters, uh, which is so much fun in the garden. Yes. Thank you so much. And we could talk about native bees all day. Um, but if you do have any other burning questions, we will be having a little morning tea soon. So um, I'll be around uh, throughout morning tea to chat about some native bees some more. Uh, definitely chat with each other. If you've come to this event, it's probably because you all have a mutual interest. Um, so even having a chat with each other, um, talking about the bees that you've seen, the things that you've done, the flowers that you've planted, um, this is a beautiful opportunity to meet like-minded people. Uh, we'll have some native stingless bee honey as well as some European honey, some European bee honey. So we can even taste that comparison as well. Uh, some beautiful scones and tea. Uh, before we move outside into the hall, just love to really thank Dr. Michael Batley for sharing your knowledge with us today. There's so much wisdom in all the years that you've spent learning about native bees and it is such a privilege to be sitting here and to be able to hear your stories. So can we please give Michael Batley a big round of applause. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.